Hi, Jason. This is David Ardley from Switzerland. Looking forward to your next design cast. Hello, I'm JD, and I listen to Design Cast from Qingdao, China. Hi, I'm Linda, and I listen to Design Cast from Milwaukee. Hello and welcome to DesignCast, a podcast where I interview a wide range of excellent guests in design and STEAM education to get their unique perspectives. My name is Jason Regan and I use my 20 plus years of experience as a design educator to dig deep into complex issues. This podcast has one simple mission, to create a community of people around the world that are interested in design and STEAM education. Each episode, I chat with guests from all corners of the design world, from classroom teachers to authors and even to educational consultants. We discuss a wide range of topics that we feel are relevant today. I do want to ask you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, share, or download from your favorite podcasting app. This helps the podcast get discovered by listeners that might not find it otherwise. Also, it helps me to continually define the direction of future guests and episodes. Feel free to drop by my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, to leave me a comment or to sign up to be considered as a future guest on future episodes. Also, don't forget to stop by Anchor and leave me a voice clip that could even end up in an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. So let's get to it. Okay, on this episode of DesignCast, I had the amazing opportunity to chat with Ross McGill. Ross is the founder of Teacher Toolkit, which I have the link for in the show notes. With over 25 years in education, Ross left the school environment to focus on his website and resource creation and curation full-time just over three years ago. He has authored eight books and is currently pursuing his educational doctorate from Cambridge. Our chat starts with Ross talking about his life as a design and technology teacher, and then we touch on a whole host of other topics about what led him up to this point in his career and what current projects he's working on. I'm confident that you will seriously enjoy this episode. You can find out more about Ross and even leave him a voice message over his website at teachertoolkit.co.uk. All of his social media handles are also included on his website. Please subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to possibly be a guest, please reach out to me through my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, as there is a content form and contact form right there on the website. If typing a message isn't really your thing, you can always share a voice message with me over at my homepage on anchor.fm uh, for this podcast. Now, I cannot wait 
to hear from you. I'm excited. I'd love to hear from you guys. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat that I had with Ross McGill. Welcome back to another edition of DesignCast, and I am just absolutely thrilled and honored to have Ross McGill here with me. Ross, good morning. How are you doing? Hi, Jason. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you accepting my invitation to be here with me today. And so can you just tell me just what you're up to at the moment? Since March 2020, uh, lockdown here. So prior to that, I was visiting schools around the world, physically training teachers. Another aspect of my work is, you know, books and blogging. So the blog itself is a full-time job in its own right, you know, half a million visitors a month. And then I'm trying to, every time I say it out loud, it reminds me I need to knuckle down, but I'm doing my doctorate at Cambridge. I'm in my third year looking at kind of digital psychology or digital cyber psychology and digital sociology. When I say behavior, I don't mean naughty, but how teachers connect and influence each other. And my particular focus is on political educational influence. So that's what I'm kind of trying to address as a what's called a critical autoethnography. So I'll talk about it later. Uh, but right now it's, you know, blogs, resources, full-time kind of online webinars with my own clients that I generate, as well as uh, I said before we came on air, a school in South Korea. Um, you'll have to pronounce the island for me for, li- for listeners where you're based. Yeah. Jeju. 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 Yeah. Jeju. Uh, so, you know, schools from Chile and Brazil, to South Korea and like we said uh, I have not yet reached North Korea but I'm doing pretty well so far. Well I'm not far from North Korea so I'll just sort of send up the bat signal and see if we can make something happen. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that you do a lot with online stuff that's your that's your business but can you tell me a little bit about what led up to you actually becoming an educator so many years ago? From 19 years old that conversation you love kids you love your design the technology subject why don't you be a teacher it just made sense so off I went for four years uh, moving from North England to uh, South East London uh, to Goldsmiths College to train on a four-year training course to be a teacher not not to do a degree and then think about right what should I do next I went to be a teacher so that four-year theory and practice a, a wide range of placement schools or training schools or training type scenarios for me to train so I had a good breadth of knowledge and understanding and then went to school in Tottenham so uh, Tottenham kind of North London uh, football club people will know so very challenging circumstances I managed to do 25 years which I think is an achievement for most teachers you know the average lifespan of a teacher here in England is about 13 years with the vast majority leaving after the first the first year and about 40% disappearing after five so I've definitely earned my badge and I guess 12 or 13 years ago, I started to experiment with this world of blogging. And uh, 13 years later, it is what it is now. And it's, you know, the word influence is used and stuff. But it, it was always a place for me just to reflect and share and ask questions. And then someone in South Korea sent me a reply and I got a bit of feedback. And I thought, this is great. I don't need to wait for someone in my own school to give me some feedback. A week later, I had loads of people asking or uh, tweaking or posing back some thoughts and 13 years later my knowledge of teaching is far greater than it's ever been and you know we're not finished absolutely i understand that you actually like you mentioned were doing a lot of design technology in, in high school and what kinds of things did you do in design technology and sort of what were your specialisms uh, so i my passion was always been graphic communication so that kind of orthographic isometric auxiliary type projections lovely story actually about 
two weeks ago, I visited my examination school. So when I was 16 years old to sit my first exam is when I went off to be a teacher. And the teacher who taught me is still there, but he's now the DT technician. So that was a wonderful moment. In fact, it was probably one of my career highlights to go full circle and come back to the school that inspired me to be a DT teacher and see the people still there and give back. It was wonderful to see him because it was proper old school, sit down, drawing table. You know, I think at the time the rotary prens were starting to be invented. Uh, this is in the kind of mid 80s but before that it was like sharpen your pencil with a blade you did a drawing you know whether it was a, a caster wheel or a leg or a part of a machine and you split it in half and you drew the projection and you spent weeks doing a drawing and uh, I loved it uh, I, I absolutely loved it so I still have the heartstrings to do that so I've got a bit of space I've just relocated to a new um, home and I've got a bit more space so I have dreams of buying a little drawing table and sitting down and getting some drawings done again obviously through your degree and then your teaching career spans into other aspects so as a, a young um, head of design and technology in a, a brand new school I had the opportunity to, to spend a lot of money and create lots of product design type classrooms uh, multidisciplinary materials kind of product design sampling that kids would do experiments traditional subjects that I've taught you know the full spectrum electronics textiles CAD CAM pneumatics and uh, pretty much everything but to a kind of 11 to 14 year old level. Some of that would then specialize into, you know, to A-level degrees that's 18 years old, designing corsets and textiles to building guitars and all sorts of things. So you kind of start to really challenge your own subject knowledge when you start to branch out into very high level specific types of projects with your kids. But um, it's a world that I miss, you know, as I, I moved into school leadership pretty early in my career, I suppose. In my third year of teaching, I, I was a young, middle leader uh, in charge of myself to begin with but then soon I had about 13 people around me 2007 I moved into school leadership life so suddenly no longer head of a small design team you're now in charge of your whole school responsibility across the entire school so your projects are a lot more harder to manage but you're still part of the design and technology teaching department team but it sadly becomes because of all the other pressures you face as school leader it doesn't it starts to become not a priority and i've always tried my hardest to make my own lessons a priority particularly when you're a school leader you get pulled and pushed in all directions by kids parents and staff and you have to fix and resolve and troubleshoot and support and challenge those types so sometimes you know a safeguarding issue could just trump your entire plans for the day so you have to have your lessons planned and you have to draw in on your experiences having things already just in case those car crash scenarios happen but over time you, you start to you go up the ladder even further and then your classrooms become a lower i wouldn't say lower priority a, a lesser impact on your working week i suppose you know when i finished uh, or stepped out of full-time teaching three years ago I was probably teaching six hours a week in the classroom, which is great if you're a school leader because it keeps your toes in the water. But, you know, most teachers are working 20, 25 hours a week full-time in the classroom. So it's a very different, you know, the push and pull challenges of school leadership versus the classroom. But um, that might be a snapshot of my classroom career to date. Wow. I want to ask you a little follow-up to that. Do you find that having been a manager of your own space and then a space with a small team prepared you to be a manager of a larger school-wide organization? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yes and no. Uh, 
Yes, through experiences, but no, in terms of you didn't consciously go out of your way to do specific things, knowing that you were going to step up into rolling out projects across the whole school. But, you know, we all go through difficult conversations with each other. We receive them, we give them, you learn what works, you learn how to motivate, inspire, you know, all the different seasons throughout the academic year and your morale and workload. So you learn those things, I guess, start to get an insight into whole school or college challenges, budgets uh, and pressures. And, and plus when your remit then goes beyond, beyond your own team, you start to have to be a bit more of a, a listening ear and a watching eye and learn when and when not to say something and when to bite your tongue and et cetera, et cetera. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a pe- there's a, these are people or leadership skills, I suppose, that you have to learn, sadly, on the job, because I think the nature of at least education is with insufficient funding, we often have to learn on the job rather than be shown beforehand before we step up. Totally agree. And I think that education is one of the only fields you find that, (laughs) you know, because a lot of times in other fields, it's, you know, people have time to be trained and to to properly be mentored. And, but in schools, we're we're often on a shoestring budget with even a smaller staff. And so, yeah, I think that it makes us quite resilient. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, you've talked a little bit about Teacher Toolkit. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about what's going on at Teacher Toolkit at the moment? Oh, at the moment. So I try my hardest to put out one or two blogs a week that are just my own. And they're either just opinion pieces, a bit of research that I read and I've translated into a bite-sized summary. You know, obviously that kind of large audience brings in that influencer type sponsorship work. I've been doing it probably about seven years and, you know, many years ago it started to pay my teacher salary. So I knew that I could, it was never an intention to do that or to yen think, right, I can step out of teaching. But with the kind of sponsored type stuff, it becomes quite a responsibility legally and data disclosure and contracts and payments and things. So the great, great thing is it pays me to do those things and put products that I believe in in front of the eyes of the teachers. And ultimately, it keeps my website free and open access, which I take great pride in. And, you know, when I first started the accept sponsored work, particularly, I was always quite proud that I've always declared it from the very start, long before this influencer dialogue or sponsored articles in the media that you might see today. So they are all on there and disclosed. But today, you know, resources, you know, for years, I used to just have click this hyperlink and you know Jason in South Korea would download it I'd have no idea so I've worked hard you know all the income that I've generated I've spent it all back on the website to just grow the website to a bit more of a robust place it's not there not totally there yet you know I'm still largely a one-man team but at least I now get your email and I can talk to you so you know although 330,000 followers online I've got a little niche fan club of about 35,000 teachers who give me their email and actually like me to email them two or three times a week with look at this result or I've created this you can find out first before the rest of the world so I'm doing those things behind the scenes and I'm quite enjoying that kind of newsletter circuit behind all the social media presence that I've got and it generates lots of dialogue and work and conversations with people I've just started a membership as well so you know I'm trying to give people my best resources so this is kind of maybe a VIP club now inside my membership and again I was planning this before the virus and also traveling the world you know technically i could live anywhere i just need a wi-fi connection so i've just relocated <laughs> spending a lot more on the website thinking longer term you know if i'm traveling to south korea for a, a job in a school with 100 teachers in front of me it restricts what i can do on my computer to keep the, the huge audience i've got happy as well so i wanted to get to a place where i had a better balance 
and I could start to be a bit more selective about my physical work. So I've now got this kind of residual online income, which one, keeps the website free. Two, people are parting with one pound a month, which I think is incredible value. And the stuff that I'm sending them is literally, I'm digging deep and I'm spending probably three or four days creating this content and sending them a huge stack of slides that they can use as a training resource with their other colleagues, but also I send them probably you know, five to 10 slides that they can edit and I give them copyright license to do so. You know, having gone through the whole copyright and legal side, I make sure that everything's legit. My theory was, you know, if I can just convert 1% of 330,000 people, that would be my monthly salary where I can keep the website free. I have no longer pressures to travel physically. And, you know, I'm not quite there yet, but at least while the virus and lockdown, it takes a little bit of pressure off me to feed my family. And, you know, stepping away from a 25-year career of you get your salary every month, I now have to fight for every pound. You know, it's been scary, but I'm now getting used to that way of living and working. And I'm starting to, you know, that Sunday night feeling we get as teachers, you know, back to work and, you know, salary and balancing the bills. So I don't have the Sunday night feeling in the stomach anymore, but I do get it throughout the month in other, you know, whether it's a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon, because the bank balance is either up or down. I've got a lot of expenses as well as to kind of pay myself. And plus, you know, I've just gone through my third copyright case for things that I've shared on my blog dating back five or six years. So I'm constantly tweaking, cleaning, refining, editing. You know, there's two and a half thousand blogs on the site, you know, over two million words. The website's evolved a few, a few different platforms over the years, but it kind of dates back to about 2008. So, you know, the blogging world for all of us was pretty unknown. You know, I've been blogging since 2000, actually, but you know, the blogs and apps and third-party things that we can now grab a picture, add a bit of text on the top, and you don't realize that it's someone else's copyright. These things... We do as humble bloggers, teachers, or whatever we want to do in our own industries. But then when you start to have a large audience with a lot more people looking at you, and if they, the perception is that you're a, a large company, which I think the perception is that I am, but it's not, it's just me, then there's a, a, there's a more of a demand for people to think, right, well, he's made a few quid from our images, let me sue him. So I've, I've dealt with my third copyright case last week. So it's just making me a bit more uh, wiser and aware uh, and being a bit more cautious but still you know keeping to my passion getting resources in front of teachers that are kind of supported with a bit of research that are pragmatic they can use kind of plug and play theory in the classroom the next day as well as me dabbling in my own interests with research and the politics and the thing, things that I'm interested in without taking my kind of core audience away from the purpose of the classroom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. You know, we don't think about that as teachers very often, but we do talk about citation and, and proper, you know, whatever for students. And, and I think stories like that's even more real for those students and, and oh, yeah. teachers we're too. About, we're about thousands of pounds, thousands. I'm glad that you're moving right along with that. So I want to back up a little bit. You were talking about your doctoral research and it sounds yeah. like you're taking some of the theories that you've been researching and using them towards your site to do with social awareness and social media and stuff. Yeah, I've got a wide spectrum. The, the brand inside of my own development as a design and technology teacher, you know, call to arms, clickbait, sponsored links, as well as looking at analytics on a monthly basis, 
through Twitter, through my blog, knowing what, and I said the word behaviors earlier, what the teachers need, what's their average reading time, what locations, uh, you know, people are connecting with. So it's become a bit of a digital science, I suppose, a data scientist in, in many respects. And with all the kind of balls I'm juggling, you know, I'm not saying I'm a data scientist, but I, I've developed some degree of what works, at least in the education sector and, you know, way beyond the UK, I suppose. And that is my life as a teacher stroke blogger, author, and now influencer and whatever else you know getting into the world of academic research and kind of refining what i would like to explore you know understanding different research terms thinking that i used to be engaged with research but it wasn't really research it was just more hobby type stuff so i'm not there yet but i'm i'm more towards you know thinking more like an academic um, i'm currently preparing for my upgrade i kind of need to get it knuckled out and thrashed on paper in the next six months then have a little kind of mini viva and then i'm essentially get the rubber stamp to go off and conduct my research and then the hard work will be protecting time in my week to actually study and write and then uh, my, my timeline is my own they kind of say you know seven or eight years are going to start pushing me out the door so I'm in my third year so I need to kind of get something done in the next two or three years but I guess if you think of so if I just un unpick these words for people listeners is critical auto ethnography so an ethnography is a close study of a group of people or person and auto is of myself the term academically critical means asking difficult or challenging questions so there's a paper I have published if people are interested on three key decisions I've made in my life as a teacher blogger that have really changed my kind of blogger my blogger life I suppose um, so that's out there um, it's got, it's, it, I've called it fateful moments if people are interested three fateful decisions about my life as a teacher stroke blogger that have really shaped what the position that I'm in today um, and then there's something called you know digital cyber psychology so how people connect with each other online create groups have conversations that kind of social media outrage, the fake news, all that type of epoch that we're living in. If people imagine uh, a bit like a spider web, um, you know, if I draw out a particular hashtag, suck out the tweets, so my focus is on Twitter specifically in terms of social media. If I suck out a hashtag, grab all the user IDs, I can create what's called a static social media network analysis. So that's a, basically a flat spider map that Ross has tweeted Jason, for example. But if I want to create a dynamic, which is where I need to get to, uh, I need to teach myself a bit of coding language on a platform called R, which allows me to click and drag. So if I move Ross to the center or Jason's at the center, I can see who he or she is then talking to. What I'd like to just unpick is how teachers are building their own networks on social media to share ideas and look in particular where it's influenced traditional forms of media, so newspapers and press releases or politi political statements or influences on education here in England in particular. So my kind of focus, I hope, will be on school inspections and the reliability of grading a school and what impact it has on teacher attrition, house prices, poverty, knife crime. You know, it's a lifetime's work, I suspect, but that's where my interests currently reside and what I'm hoping to explore. That's amazing. I actually am involved in a lot of inspections as well. I work in an IB school, so I do stuff with IB. I've done a little bit with, in, in Dubai with the Dubai yeah. Inspection Bureau. And so, and I know a lot of that is tied into like an Ofsted type model. Um, yes. And so it's it's very different when it's more punitive versus yeah. more I mean, uh, I, partnership. So, I mean, in England, for context, I was one of a few key people that helped eradicate graded individual lessons in 2014. My focus now, having been in 
outstanding and special measure schools my whole career, I've always done the same things. It's the context in which you work, the pupils, your school's location, you know, the, the goalposts and how the kind of inspection framework changes that I think makes the biggest difference. So I'm now trying to tackle if it's a reliable indicator. And as a parent, I want to know that my son's happy and safe, but is he getting a good education? So it's a real push and pull issue. And if I step out of education, you know, I've just moved into a new area. I'm getting the odd takeaway here or there through lockdown and, you know, trying to find builders and people like that to kind of help me with somehow. So you do look at ratings and it does give you an indication, but the, the notion of reliability, or at least me looking at a builder or a takeaway, someone outside of that expert area, it is very interesting what our perceptions are of quality. So I'm trying to use that experience as well to my own experience of working in the system but also how parents Ofsted government also you know everyone needs to have a say you're never going to get make everyone happy but I'd like to unpick that if your school gets outstanding or special measures what influence does it have on teacher headcount so how many people stay how many people leave after and um, what influence does it have on local community house prices poverty those influences and also crime you know if your school's in special measures you're more likely to leave, lose a batch of teachers after. The school will spend a lot of money rebranding, rebuilding community posters, busting perceptions on the street. House prices might rock. Then you've got your journalists and estate agents saying, oh, don't go to that school. It's outstanding. This one's not very good. And then, you know, people move out, house prices, gangs, drugs, you know, particularly when it comes to community type, you know, hospitals, schools, those types of things. We all want to walk down the street and love thy neighbor and respect people regardless of religion or color, etc. But, you know, schools we know is a huge commodity. Is it detrimental to label a school with a keyword, special measures, that then impacts on everyone without anyone really understanding the reliability of that grade because you can you get three or four page reports with the details and context let's face it who reads a who reads an inspection report apart from the teachers going to apply to a new school or the occasional school leader or research here in england about 19 percent of parents i think it might be lower but 90 percent of parents only read the first page of the report or, or the full report, I'll have to check my stats, but it's very low. So all this money we spend on taxpayers to have inspection systems, you know, and here in England, we've got the issue of Ofsted's independence from government, or is it just a puppet to go and do government policy? And then the schools that are forced to change kind of status and funding and privatization, you know, competition's good. And I'm, I realize that through my own life now as a blogger or, or a, a kind of on-stroke businessman, um, I'm still getting used to using these ways to my own identity I define myself as a teacher but the world of competition you know here's a sticker first place on the sports day you know these things do make a difference to our motivations as humans so what influences I guess I'm trying to unpick from a doctorate so the, the challenge I've got is that's a hell of a lot of interest and um, I need to really narrow it down and be very specific about what I want to unpick that was my thought was that's uh, like you said it's a lifetime of work so it might be having to narrow it down just slightly as you go <laughs> yeah. there. Well, that, that's where my head is at at the moment so <laughs> wow well I think it's an absolutely fantastic topic and it's really 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 relevant and I'm wondering what the the COVID wrinkle is going to bring to that 
that as well as as it ripples through our education system for the next few years. You tell me a little bit about what you're doing with educational organizations. You, you mentioned you work with and partner with schools and things. What kinds of services do you offer? Um, so I'm just looking on my little kind of Kanban board where I've got all my clients to the left of me. And, you know, so I'm working with ed tech organizations. So people that would make, you know, produce little visualizers or bits of ed tech software for teachers using the classroom. So those are all, you know, I only tend to go with things that I think are useful or things that I would use or things that I like. Try to offer a critique as well as signposts or here, you know, sponsored posts, etc. But it's a great resource. So I would recommend it. And um, to charities, I do a lot of work with charities, so UNICEF, UNCHR, the British Red Cross, you know, sharing all the resources that they offer to schools. Then other companies from Wacom to Microsoft to universities, so sharing their resources, their courses for teachers, so UCL here, uh, Cambridge, that type of stuff. And what else have we got? Uh, yeah, lots of ed tech software. So that's the kind of blogging side. My work with schools is always down the kind of teaching and learning aspects of school life, so quality teaching in the classroom, school leadership evaluation of quality teaching you know from observations to developing coaching cultures uh, those are where my passions lie other things that are of interest for me are appraisal systems you know hands up if you like appraisal anyone says no school leader ever but I, I'm now reshaping my own thoughts into how can you get teachers say yeah we really like our appraisal so I'm introducing currently research methods so conducted posing a research question that's critiqued by not just your line manager but a group of people a bit like a mini viva you go through uh, there's a resource that I've got on my site called the five minute research plan so it goes through a little methodology of thinking and this fits in with the academic year and it allows teachers to set their own targets rather than be told what to do and so therefore it's going to be a bit more motivational and two if it's refined correctly it allows teachers to conduct actual research in the busy nature of their classroom, but also, more importantly, contribute new knowledge to their school community as well as to the profession itself. And I think that can only be a good thing. So that's what I'm really interested in. So my latest book, Just Great Teaching, and lots of things on my blog, I've talked about my own experiences of leading the whole school appraisal for six or 700 teachers over the last 10 years. Um, so I think I'm close to having a great methodology and I'm really pleased to see a number of schools now starting to want to use those. And, you know, with lockdown and webinars, um, I've probably since March, probably six or 7,000 teachers in about 60 plus countries now connected with. So it's great fun. And one, you know, because I can't get out physically to many people at the moment, it allows me to just understand through face-to-face online um, the issues that teachers are facing. So at least with the 25,000 teachers I have worked with, face-to-face in the last three years prior to lockdown marking was the number one issue that teachers said was their workload burden and that's in any type of school any type of school in any country but since lockdown switching content online and currently now with kids at home and in the classroom planning seems to be the key number one driver at the moment marking's always going to be there niggling away but planning seems to be the greatest drain on teachers workload and just for, for listeners you know my twitter channel gets about 10 million impressions a month on an average month if i just say i'm brushing my teeth five or six thousand people would see that tweet so right now in terms of just people's understanding of my audience i'm getting maybe two or three million impressions and for me that tells me what well, one like where is everybody and it but and two because i'm at home with 30 kids not around me and everyone else is with with the masks and the, the boundaries and the the people PPE. Teachers' times now with the, uh, being a bit ang- uh, anxious, making sure everyone's safe, they're planning, they're marking. So teachers are incredibly busy right 
right now, which suggests why my Twitter channel's virtually silent. But more importantly, it just suggests that teachers are doing incredible work right now to keep schools open, to keep themselves and their families and their colleagues safe, as well as, you know, mental health and well-being work for children. You know, that COVID wrinkle, I like that expression you said. It's going to make have a big impact on all of us. And you know, I've been watching a few things on the, you know, we were watching stuff on the news. There's not one person I don't know, whether disadvantaged or affluent, that hasn't been impacted in some shape or form from COVID. You're absolutely right. It's just, and it's rippled across the world. There's in different places are having different levels of anxiety and, and, and whatnot. And so I'm, I'm with you, man. I know it's, it's been a, a rough time. And so can I ask you two core questions? I know you're super busy. Where do you go for inspiration personally? Like what, where do you uh, go? What do you want? <laughs> uh, well, my first port of call is my family, you know, particularly my son, Freddie, who's nine years old. You know, my blog started when I lost my job in teaching. I took redundancy. I was going to be a father. I was working in a very toxic school. So I thought after 17 years of teaching, I'll step out. I'll just be a dad for a bit. I'll take my voluntary redundancy money and reflect. But what I didn't know at the time was he was born premature. So we were in hospital for 90 days. And I started a blog as a diary for therapy more than anything. And I'd come home, tweak it, put it on my Facebook wall. And my family would read it rather than, you know, constantly text messaging all night and day through hospital. And then that blog went viral. Well, I say viral. It got a quarter of a million impressions very quickly. And I was asking on the television and all sorts for the baby premature world. And it was a life and death scenario at the time. But for me, it was important therapy. But then I also, back in my head, I don't have a teaching job. How am I going to pay for my family food on the table? And I had an old crap blog called teacher-toolkit.blogspot.com or .co.uk. And I, uh, you can still find, I put out a tw Twitter uh, a tweet yesterday, actually. You could say, uh, you know, there's a trend at the moment. Uh, this is what it was before, and this, this is how I'm doing. I did a before and after screenshot, 13 years difference. But I had an old blog, and I thought, let me uh, retweak it and start blogging uh, at home when Freddie was safe on oxygen. And that's how my blogger journey started. And it was just one blog every six weeks, a little diary, and now it is what it is today. So Freddie's my biggest inspiration. Um, my wife always is a great, the challenge of working at home, particularly remotely at the moment is you know in schools you get feedback every second on the corridor from kids and from your staff mine i rely on online through my twitter and i've always had that so i've been in many respects a bit of a virtual head teacher for a decade allowing me to understand trends what people are interested in but through lockdown it's been very bizarre because i'm at home apart from the odd postman coming to my door i'm not seeing anybody apart from having chats like you or you know stuff online so it's very hard to um keep inspired particularly being self-employed at managing your own mental health your well-being and your deadlines so my inspiration is always my audience stroke community and I said earlier with my newsletter I'm really enjoying behind the scenes this you know 35,000 people sign up probably getting you know about eight or nine thousand connections with people in there twice a week actually so I'm getting good bits of feedback seeing what people are interested in getting understand the pressures and plus you know the schools I've probably lost count but you know I've got easily nine or ten schools on the go at the moment so when I connect in with them we have zoom chats you know I get to have a little or chat with them throughout the session about the different pressures so the teachers always give me that inspiration and going back to my childhood school a couple of weeks ago that was a real full circle moment and kind of lots of food for my soul you know that was my starting journey as a teacher so yeah many things I guess you know blogs and research give me uh, my inspiration and um, I take a lot of inspiration from just general news and politics yeah I, I guess just different people just people 
Um, <laughs> people uh, inspire me. Fantastic. And my, dog, and my dog. I should mention that <laughs> while I got a chance. Oh, yeah. What kind of dog is that? I've got a border collie. She's a couple of years old. She keeps me on my toes and she drags me out the house and I can get a little walk around the park. So she's probably been the best thing I've done the last two or three years because, you know, it, You'll know that anyone else as a teacher, you work 50 to 80 hours a week. You never get to the bottom of your to-do list. Uh, add in your blogger life, you know, 300,000 followers and constant emails. Uh, some weeks I was working till, you know, one o'clock in the night, back up at six, setting cover for the whole school organization, which right now during a pandemic when people in bubbles and isolate must be an absolute nightmare. I, I loved and loathed setting cover for school teachers who were sick because whatever strategy you put in place, you could never really have everything, every stone plan, every stone unturned and planned for. Uh, there was always emergencies, childcare, those types of things. But, you know, those scenarios have made me a better person. They've inspired me to make complex school life easier. You know, and when you're working with 30 kids, you know, you and I are sitting on a little podcast together. I always tell people outside of education, you know, if we put 30 kids around us, that's the reality for teachers. You know, I can't really think about anything until I get to the end of the day. And even when I have I've then got an hour's meeting and then I've been given a huge to-do list and then I've got my own stuff as well as my marketing and my kids and my parents so you want me to read this blog or you want me to read this book by Ross McGill or whatever you've got no chance that's the reality absolutely well I have one more thing to ask and then I think that was a great way to start to wrap things up but if, if folks really do want to get in touch with you I know you've mentioned your website a lot is that the best way to get in touch with you yeah teacher toolkit on Google you'll pretty mind find uh, all my social channels and my blog you know the contact page on my website I like the voicemail I've got little voicemail features that works well people quite like that leave a little voicemail through the website to me and that pings an email alert and we, we can speak to each other which is nice and um, but teacher toolkit you'll find thousands of resources I've got one or two books which people might find of interest to try and make the working life of teachers easier as well as kind of inspiring provoking shaping school leadership decisions I'll give you one scenario to finish you've tested positive you're a teacher you've tested positive for COVID you're sent home to self-isolate with your own kids your own family and your school is asking you to check in and set cover so yes and no I, I'm I would normally you know teachers you know I would normally set cover anyway which you know we have the question when you're ill are you ill or you're not ill you know because if you're ill you're at home you shouldn't be working so that's the first thing and then you're asked to kind of call in with kids who are self-isolated and also sometimes kids that you aren't necessarily teaching, but part of the rota or whole school responsibility to check in with these other kids. So, you know, we have to, if we want to raise the status of the teaching profession, we have to stop doing harmful things to one another. So for example, if you're at home sick with COVID, you're ill. I need to ensure that you're happier and safe and going to be healthier, not at home with extra pressure. And oh, do you mind using your own mobile phone bill that you pay for to call all the kids? to check in you know there's all these and that's just we, we, we talked about before we came online the education is tight on cash tight on time and we all have to do a little bit above and beyond but I think what if we all stop doing these things it might force our governments to invest more in our education system. So it starts with us as teachers. We have to say no. And, you know, the heartstrings of us all want to do good. But, you know, we all, we've all worked 80 hours. We've all done our Saturdays and Sundays over the weekend to get to our workload. We've all called kids on a Friday night on our mobile phone. These things make a difference. But, 
you know, you'd also struggle to find much research on teacher well-being a decade ago, but now it's in abundance. And we know that teachers who are happier perform better. As a result, collectively, they perform better and you define performance how you want, but you're going to get happier kids, happier school outcomes. Again, define that how you want, attendance, punctuality or grades, but it's a no-brainer. So as the discourse of mental health improves and, and heightens even more, uh, I'd like to hope in the next 10 years that there's a lot more school case studies and a lot more governments championing that if you have happier teachers, school leaders intelligently are using well-being, stroke sickness and whatever else methods to support their colleagues, it's going to have a big impact on teacher attrition. We're going to have more teachers in the profession. Happier teachers will raise the status of the profession and ultimately we won't see people leave prematurely. And the ultimate goal is going to have a better impact on kids as they come through then. That, oh, Mr McGill, you're sick. It's not a big deal. I hope you're feeling better. Rather than, oh, sir, you missed our lesson. And yeah, meanwhile, behind the scenes, I've been forced to do all sorts of interesting things while I've been sick. So I don't know if that's a big, you know, an answer. <laughs> you asked me about my books, so it's gone. I've gone along uh, where to find me, but I've gone a, a roundabout way. My my passion's teacher workload and teacher well-being, and you know, I've been there myself. I've done great things and I've done awful things. I think now I'm kind of supporting from outside. I do understand the reality. I do understand the profession uh, pressures, but. I think we all need to do a little more, a bit more intelligent accountability of one another and really particularly the well-being aspects of school life. Just think a bit more cautiously about what works. I could not think of a better way to wrap things up. Ross, I really appreciate you taking your, your time to speak to me and I am excited about having connected with you and I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode of DesignCast. I'm Jason, your host, and I produced and created this podcast. If you have any input, I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to seeing you again really soon.